You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to the Locked On Jets podcast. It's Thursday, January 30th, 2020. I'm your host, John B. from gangrenenation.com. Great to be with you today as we talk about the Jets. As a reminder, if you like our show, subscribe to it and leave it a good review. It's Thursday, which means it's our weekly mailbag show. Thanks so much to everybody who sent in questions. We'll get to as many of them as we can today. Our first question pertains to a Jamal Adams extension. The safety kind of hinted that the Jets and he are maybe in preliminary stages of a a contract extension yesterday. We'll see what happens. Jamal did did send out a tweet kind of clarifying. There were some media sources that reported maybe the things they kind of suggested things were further along than they really did. So Jamal tweeted out a clarification that, you know, they, there seems, it, it kind of seems like there were pre- preliminary discussions. You know, nothing's necessarily imminent, but our first question deals with a potential Adams extension. Can they sign him to a contract for say six years, $90 million overall and 48 million of that guaranteed, but only after his rookie contract and fifth year option are over that way he has guaranteed money and the team has more cap space for the next two years. Or do they have to prorate the guaranteed money over the next eight years? So there's a lot to get to in that question. And it's it's complex. And I mean, I'm, I don't really want to go through all of the nuances of the, the cap rules. Um, the, so the first thing I'd say is, you know, you talk about the fifth year option. For a top 10 pick, the fifth year option is not really a bargain for the team. The, the first four years of a contract for a rookie uh, – a drafted player on a rookie deal are a bargain for a team. The fifth year option, especially for a top 10 pick, top 10 pick, a fifth year option is the average of the top 10 salaries at that player's position. So Jamal Adams is going to be paid like an elite safety if he's on the fifth year option. Now he's not, again, that's an average of the top 10, not potentially the highest paid safety in the NFL, like an extension could get him, but we're not talking about a huge discount. I mean, this is this year. 2020 is really the last year where Jamal Adams is any sort of a good deal for the jets financially or great deal financially for the jets. Um, There's another thing that may come into play this year because it's the last year of the collective bargaining agreement, which sets the rules for the league. So there's something known as the 30% rule, which essentially is that any contract that's signed an annual ra- player cannot get an annual raise of more than 30 percent so that could come into impact come into play there as far as the question goes i mean teams can get creative with contracts you can structure a deal kind of uh, the rules are pretty lax on contracts you could kind of structure a deal any way you want to structure a deal and you know i go back 22 years when the jets signed curtis martin from new england and this is actually something that's not allowed anymore, and I hope I'm not mixing the, the story up, but Curtis Martin was a restricted free agent, which meant the Jets could only give him an offer sheet. Jets could offer him a contract. Martin could sign the offer sheet. But New England had the option to match the offer, and then they'd keep Martin on the same contract the Jets offered him. So what the Jets did, Mike Tannenbaum, who he was not the GM of the Jets at that point. Uh, he was working in the front office under Bill Parcells, but Mike Tannenbaum structured the contract and it was essentially as i understand it and again like i hope i'm not getting the story wrong but the contract essentially stated that if curtis martin is playing under this contract with the new england patriots the deal is void after one year and they just put that into the contract um and essentially it made it impossible for new england to match because martin was a restricted free agent at the time which meant 
if they let Martin go to the Jets, they'd get compensation. Whereas if they match the offer, because of that provision Tannenbaum put in, the deal would have been voided after one season. Martin would have been able to go somewhere else, and the Patriots would have gotten no compensation in return. Now, that's not allowed anymore. So, But the point is, unless you do something crazy that forces the league to change its rules, you can structure deals any way you want to, essentially. You know, you can play around with when guaranteed money comes is due to the player. You, you can you can structure it pretty much any way you want. I mean, most a lot of these deals have a low first-year cap hit. Um, what I would say, though, in general, is my general philosophy is I'd rather front-load deals. And I understand, you know, you'd like more help. You, if you backload the contract and keep the early years cap hits low, you know, I, I understand it gives you more money to play with in the short run. But in general, the more guaranteed money you put off and the higher salaries you put off till the future – Again, like co- these contracts are complex, so there's no there's no set rules on these things. But in general, the more guarantees you put off until the future, and the the higher the pay is in the future, the less flexibility you have with a deal. You know, it it becomes tougher to to make the changes when you want to with a deal. So I think in general in the NFL, it's better to front load deals. It's better, and I'm talking both guaranteed money and salary. I'd rather take an a big cap hit early and most of the guaranteed money early than later on because guaranteed money is typically what turns into dead money and it makes it more difficult to maneuver a contract and it makes restructuring the deal if you want to create more cap space it makes restructuring the deal hurt more so i just think in general I understand the Jets have a lot of holes to fill this offseason. I understand that, you know, you, you're trying to turn things around quickly and that maybe backloading a Jamal Adams contract could help the, the Jets in the short run. And look, I mean, if you're going to leave yourself without flexibility, you'd choose to do it with a great player because flexibility, lack of flexibility doesn't hurt you as much if the player remains great because flexibility is essentially, you know, so it's a way out of the contract of the player is not that good. So for a guy you expect to remain great, like Jamal Adams, maybe a lack of flexibility isn't as big of a deal as it might be for another player. But at the end of the day, I just, in general, I think you're better off taking the, taking the short term hit and leaving yourself more room to work down the line. I just think it's, I, I don't love the idea of backloading this deal, both in terms of guaranteed money and in terms of, overall salary but you know ultimately i do hope the jets get something done with jamal soon my bookie has a complete collection of super bowl props and if you go to mybookie.ag slash party you can get a printable prop sheet for the big game and if you don't like football i don't know why you're listening to this podcast but you can still go to my bookie for the nba nhl and ncaa Plus, if you deposit right now, they'll match your deposit halfway. Basically, free cash to throw down the next time you want to place a wager. This is your last chance to take advantage to sign up now. So enter a promo code LOCKEDON, that's one word, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, when you make your deposit to get this deal. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, one word, at mybookie.ag. You play, you win, you get paid. Locked on Jets podcast here on a Mailbag Thursday. Next question is from Luke. He emailed this to me for last week's show, but I don't think it made it into the show. 
Uh, question is about trade talk. If the Jets trade Avery Williamson to another team, his, ta- his cap hit to the trading team would be $6.5 million instead of the $8.5 million the Jets would take on this season. Do you think there's enough value in that contract to get some draft compensation in return? I'm looking at you, Carolina Panthers. Similar question for Steve McClendon. The defensive line is not in bad shape. Do you think his contract has enough value to fetch a draft pick? If you were Joe Douglas, I love this game. What would you be willing to take for him? I, I love this game too if I'm Joe Douglas. I get to be the GM of the Jets. Uh, I think that for either guy, if there is a trade offer on the table, it probably would be pretty minimal. Not uh, Both guys are good players, but they, they're attribute that they bring to the table is run stopping and if you look in today's nfl i mean you know there's the the old cliche it's a passing league and it's true and probably you know two of the least valuable commodities on defense in the nfl today are uh run stopping linebacker and you know interior defensive lineman who stops the run you know guys who don't really add a lot in the passing game so i mean while these guys are both good players i just don't i think if you're getting a late round pick that that would be a lot. I don't think you'd get it. I think at most you're getting a late-round pick. I'm not even sure you'd get that because good players who stop the run at these positions are available for pretty cheap and free agency, so you don't need to give up a pick to get somebody like this. Again, both good players. I think both there's a market for both players if they hit the open market, but yeah, I'm just not sure. Yeah, look, if I could get a pick for either guy, I'd probably do it. And Williamson, I've, I've talked about. It's not about whether Avery Williamson's a good player. He is, but... It's just I'm not sure the Jets can dedicate $26 million to the, the off-ball linebacker position. And as far as McClendon goes, you know, there's talk he's a leader in the locker room, which is why I think he got an extension in season. But I, I do think the Jets have enough talent up front to be able to lose him. And some young players really stepped up this season. And with McClendon, it's more just a commentary on how much I like the Jets' young defensive linemen. It's really nothing against Steve McClendon. With Williamson, it's about the position he plays. It's not, not as much the position he plays with McClendon. It's just, I really like the Jets' young defensive linemen. I think they have so much young talent that they probably could move on without McClendon. But I understand they probably want to keep him around for the, for leadership purposes. I'd make a deal if, he, if one was on the table, but I'm just skeptical that one would be because guys who play the roles of a Williamson or McClendon are available, for, again, not that expensive on the open market, and you don't have to give up a draft pick for them. Next question, reverse Garoppolo. San Francisco went from the doghouse last season to the Super Bowl this season when it got its quarterback back. The Jets did not lose Sam for very long, but it's my is it it seems like Sam could never execute up to his ability over the entire course of the season with the Jets' offensive line. It's comparable to San Francisco without Garoppolo the year before. If the Jets get their offensive line back to competitive, can the Jets make a San Francisco-type leap in 2020? Well, I think the one thing needs to be noted with San Francisco is, you know, everybody talks about how, how how did this happen? How did this come out of nowhere? But if you think about it, it really did not come out of nowhere because heading into the 2018 season, I'm sorry, yeah, heading into the 2018 season, they were the hot team. They were like the trendy pick to, to make the big leap because they had finished 17 really hot with Garoppolo. Everybody, I mean, they were they were everybody's pick to go to the playoffs last year, and then the they just had a nightmare season with Garoppolo getting hurt and all that. And it's like it's like almost like everybody forgot about how hyped they were heading into 2018. Everybody forgot about all the reasons they loved the 49ers going into 2018. So it's tough. I mean, I think the 49ers are probably we're probably ahead of where the Jets are today. And I'll tell you in general, 
I would never pick any single team. You know, if you're telling me you have one pick for a team to get to the Super Bowl next season, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable picking anybody because there are 32 teams in the league and only two make it to the Super Bowl. You can be a great team and just you know have an injury at the wrong time or a bad bounce of the ball in the playoff game. It's impossible to project which team to go into the Super Bowl. So all of that said, I definitely think that there's, and it probably is a commentary on the struggles the Jets have had over the last decade, but I think that there's probably over-pessimism in the fan base when people say, well, the Jets are three years away. You're never that far away in the NFL. You're always closer than you think you are in the NFL. And the 49ers, again, I think they're ahead, they were ahead of last year where the Jets are now, but this was the team that picked second in the draft this spring, last spring, and they're in the Super Bowl now. They have a good chance to win the game. So I think it's a reminder that you know you the difference between the the best the difference between the good teams and the bad teams in the NFL isn't as great as people make it out to be. And you're, you're never as far away as you think you are as, when you, when things seem bad. And the reverse is true. You know, sometimes the team will have a good year and their fans will think that they'll have like they'll have a window to contend for like a decade, which is also frequently not true. It's easy to fall back to earth as well. There's too much bias towards the most recent result. People just seem to assume that their team's most recent result will carry on forever. I understand the Jets have had a bad stretch here, but that doesn't guarantee the Jets are going to be bad forever. I mean, really, every team's like one offseason away from being able to make noise. One or two great draft classes away, one you know, and a smart free agent class away from being right at the top of the league. So absolutely it can happen. I would not count it out, but... You know, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Jets are going to have to get a lot right. The margin for error for the Jets is smaller th- than other teams. But I don't agree with anybody who says. I mean, people say the Jets are five. Nobody's five years away in the NFL. You 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 turn your your you turn your entire roster over twice in five years. So nobody can be five years away. But I don't even agree with people who say the Jets are three years away. It's, Jets are smart. The Jets can be in business next season. But they have to be smart. They have to be, you know, the problem with the Jets is that they've missed in free agency. They've missed in the draft. That has to end. They need to hit an offseason out of the park. And if they do, with a little growth from the quarterback, a little bit of luck, I don't see any reason why they can't be right near the top of the league next year. Locked on Jets podcast here on a Mailbag Thursday. Uh, Next question. A fun question in honor of Super Bowl week. What were the best and worst Super Bowls of your lifetime? Which Super Bowl was the biggest upset to you? I know for me, as much as I hate to say it, Super Bowl 51 with the 28-3 Patriots comeback was probably the best. The worst was Super Bowl between the 49ers and the Chargers in 94. 49ers were guaranteed to win big, and it's the only Super Bowl I've turned the game off before it ended. So that's what the questioner asked. That's not my opinion. Um, in terms of best Super Bowl, I would have to go... And you know, The Super Bowl every year is big because it determines the championship for that year. But there are some Super Bowls that are more important in the long run for historical significance than others. And I I go back to Super Bowl 42 when the Giants upset the undefeated Patriots. Um, You know, it was a a great game. You had the iconic moment, the Tyree helmet catch. You had a team trying to become the second in the Super Bowl era to go undefeated, the first to go 19-0. Um, it was just a, 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 a great game, a really great game, uh, an iconic game. Went right down to the wire, the, you know, the, the touchdown near the end of the fourth quarter, and you forget that there was a play on New England's last drive. The Patriots got the ball back after the Giants took the lead. And, I mean, Tom Brady missed Randy Moss by maybe inches 
uh, a deep pass that could have at least, at the very least, set the Patriots up in field goal range for a tying kick or could have uh, resulted in a touchdown that would have won the game for New England. So, I mean, I think Super Bowl 42 would be the, the absolute best. As far as worst would go, you know, I remember that, that 49ers-Chargers Super Bowl. But the thing about that one is I, I rem- the other thing I, the thing I remember about that was not just that it was a it was a blowout, but nobody thought that was going to be a good game going in. The Chargers were enormous underdogs. If, if I recall correctly, like the Chargers were like the biggest underdogs in the Super Bowl since the Jets Colts Super Bowl three. So at least you went in not expecting a good game. I'd go with the game in the Meadowlands between the the uh, Broncos and the Seahawks, which is just a horrible game. Which when you you went into that game really excited because you had the Broncos' great offense against the Seahawks' great defense. It was no contest, and Seattle played very well. But I mean, part of the story of that game was Denver being horrible. I mean, Denver couldn't execute the first play of the game. Denver can't execute a snap, and they take a safety. Um, so it was just a, a huge letdown, and. Yeah, the game was at the Meadowlands, of course, and I remember also remember that that was a it was a a, a very mild day weather wise. There was a lot of fear about the weather in a cold weather Super Bowl, how weather could be a factor, and it was a very it was the day was fine. It was, it was about as good of a winter day as you'll get in the New York area. And then the next day, out of nowhere, not, even the weather reports weren't expecting it. We got a huge snowstorm, which even like I said, it's not like we were expecting it. It snowed more than the weather reports were um, anticipating. So that would be the uh, you know that would be the worst one I can remember. And part of it is that you know we're in a fifteen to twenty year stretch where we've gotten a lot of great Super Bowls. I mean, there have been few non competitive Super Bowls the last fifteen to twenty years, and that was just a total, just a total no show by Denver. Uh, biggest upset, you know, as much as I there were there are three that kind of jump out to me, and one I mentioned was the the Giants beating the uh, Patriots in Super Bowl forty two. I think a couple of years back when the Eagles beat the the Patriots as well, because I did I thought I really didn't think Philly had much of a shot in that game with Nick Foles. You know, Nick Foles against Tom Brady. Even today, you think about what Nick Foles is. He had a great he had that he did have that great game, but man, would you feel good about Nick Foles against Tom Brady going into a game today? I wouldn't. But the one I'd go with, I think the biggest one for me is uh, Super Bowl thirty six between the Patriots and the Rams. It was kind of the start of the New England run. It's it's crazy to think about now because the Patriots have gone on to you know have such an iconic run since then. But you have to remember, like at that time, first of all, the Rams were huge favorites because they 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 were the juggernaut offense, the greatest show on turf, and they had won the Super Bowl two years earlier against the Titans. I mean, the other thing that's easy to forget in the context of that time was it wasn't really. A lot of people didn't think New England was that good that year. You know, the Patriots had kind of come out of nowhere. They Their team had a lot of no-name guys on it. We didn't really know how good Brady was. Brady was a guy who was a sixth-round pick who replaced Drew Bledsoe. And the Rams were this juggernaut. And, again, it's crazy to think now that New England could be such a big under. But a lot of people didn't think New England was that good that year. I mean, nobody had them beating Pittsburgh in the AFC Championship game that year. And they went out and did it. Um, so... I think that, to me, Super Bowl thirty six is the biggest upset I I can recall, even bigger. Uh, like I didn't think I did not think the Giants had a great shot against New England in forty two, and two years ago I did not love Philly against New England, but I think New England over the Rams in thirty six was just one I really, I think is really surprising. Um, next question: 
Is it just me, or did the Jets run less pre-snap motion than most of the good offenses in the league? It seems like most of the good offenses are constantly moving guys around and threatening the Jet sweep, and sometimes actually calling the Jet sweep to keep the defense honest. Those would be easy yards for Sam to set up some misdirection runs. What's the deal? Well, you know, I can't find, I I looked, I can't find a website that that actually tracks uh, pre-snap motions, but I'm inclined to agree with you. And watch the 49ers on Sunday. Um, they just have they have a tremendous their run game is really well designed for that reason. You know, you talk about motioning the wide receiver and faking the jet sweep, and it just if you want to force the defense to defend as much of the field as possible, and when the threat is there of a guy at full speed getting the ball going outside, it just stretches the defense out. It gets guys flowing in the wrong direction, and you're right about pre snap shifts where you have like multiple guys moving from one side of the field to the other, and the reason that works well is that it resets the defense's assignments because pretty much the defense run assignments are based on the gaps. Gaps are spaces between two blockers, whether it's the center and the the space between the center and the guard, guard and the tackle, tackle and tight end. And when you move guys around constantly, especially like move two tight ends from the left to the right, it creates new gaps and it forces the defenses, the defensive players to move around. And sometimes they mess up, you know, they don't read it correctly and they leave a gap open Sometimes they just there's just a lot of indecisiveness by defenses because they get they get a little bit confused because these things are these movements are happening in real time and before they're set the offense snaps the ball and it makes the blocking assignment easier for offense. You know, def- design can only do so much, but I think it's fair to say that this Jets offense did not put a lot of stress on defenses by design. I don't think this is I'm disappointed because I felt like Adam Gase when I watched his Miami offense, maybe more in the passing game than than in the run game was pretty good at designing plays, and I did not really see a lot of that for the Jets uh, this past season. I don't think the Jets had a well-designed offense. I don't think they did enough to put stress on the defense, and part of that is, you know, pre- what the 49- look, look what the 49ers do pre-snap. Look how they force defensive players to move around on the fly forced and snap the ball before a lot of guys really understand their assignments. Look how it makes guys hesitant because they know their assignment may change. There's just a lot there, and it's not... Um, I don't think it was there for the Jets' offense, and that's where that's where I like I put the blame on coaching because you know, people say, "Well, what did you want Gase to do with this offensive line?" There are things you can do. Look, you you may not have the greatest off. You're not going to have the Kansas City offense with the players the Jets had, but I reject the notion that the Jets' players automatically forced the Jets. That there was no way the Jets could have had an offense above like the 31st best offense in the league with the play. You can work around it to some extent. You can work around it more than the Jets did. Uh, next question: Are the Jets use, still using the prior regime scouts, or did Douglas hire his own? I think there are some. I, I have to check. I think there are still some guys. I think the, the senior guys have changed. You know, Douglas has brought in his own senior guys. And the point I'd make, though, is that you know people say like everything needs to change. Well, uh, look, I'm sure there were some scouts under McCagnan who did a good job. You know, it's it's like a bad football team. Like the Jets roster is not very good, but there's still some individual players on the Jets who are pretty good. You know, I don't think you ever see the entire front office change. I don't think you ever see the entire scouting department change. There are there are always some holdovers. So I don't think it's necessarily the, necessarily the biggest deal in the world if there are. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hope you have a great Thursday, and we will chat again tomorrow.